So we are going to continue our survey of the Bible tonight. We're going to pick it up in Nehemiah chapter 6. On Wednesday nights, we're going from Genesis to Revelation. We're just working our way through a couple chapters at a time. We uh, left off here in Nehemiah 6, but prior to this, we saw that Nehemiah had set out to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem after the Jews were, uh, Israelites were released from captivity. They, they went, a handful of them went back to uh, Israel or to Jerusalem, and they began this rebuilding project. Uh, when they were there, they encountered these enemies that wanted to hinder this important work that was taking on in the rebuilding of the, the wall and the temple. Uh, they knew that rebuilding this wall would mean strength for them as a nation and protection for them as well. And so, uh, you know, I think it's interesting that the enemy is always seeking to attack at a weak position. Remember where we left off, they, they still had some uh, openings that, that were left in the wall and, and they were pulling together to try to fill those openings in and, and it just seemed like the enemy was coming in and trying to uh, discourage them while they were in a weak position so that he can come in uh, later. And uh, whenever you begin to develop practices in your own life that that would strengthen your spiritual life or your your character uh, maybe even strengthen your own defenses against the enemy uh, you can be sure that there's an enemy that will come against you as well as a believer today and uh, you know for instance when you make a decision to to start you know, going to church regularly and being in fellowship and you decide you're going to start reading the Bible for yourself and and kind of developing those practices in your life that would strengthen your your spiritual character, you can be sure that there's going to be an enemy that comes against you to try to discourage that from happening. Uh, it, it happens to all of us. And so the enemy came against Nehemiah in the uh, building of the defenses in the city of Jerusalem. And we, we saw that he first came at uh, Nehemiah with a word to discourage uh, the work of the, the rebuilding. And, and he did it by way of ridicule. Uh, this is one of Satan's powerful tools against us today is that weapon of ridicule and um, you know, none of us like to have somebody make fun of us. Nobody likes to be the the other end of the joke. Um, it, it just doesn't doesn't sit well, and um, we don't like to be ridiculed. And our flesh kind of uh, rebels against that. Well, Nehemiah wasn't distracted by this. He didn't let it get to him. He didn't let it get under his skin. He 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 was pretty confident in what he was doing and the fact that the Lord had called him to do it. And, and so uh, when, when that didn't work, then we saw the enemy came at them by 
planning these sneak attacks. They were going to try to sneak into the, the camp and, and do some damage that way. And, and so Nehemiah took some precautions against that. He had heard about this, and he, he took some precautions prote- to protect against these attacks. Uh, when this failed, then the enemy came at them through discouragement and trying to discourage what was happening. You know, as the people saw the amount of rubble, remember, they were only half done with the wall and they were still looking out and seeing all of this work that still needed to be done. And that voice of the enemy was that that word of discouragement that you're never going to finish this project. You know, you got all this to do. Who are you trying to kid? And and uh, that's another strong weapon that is used against us in our personal lives today is that that weapon of discouragement. And so we saw Nehemiah's answer to discouragement was to turn the people's eyes to the Lord and to redirect them away from the, the work that needed to be done and, and the overwhelming sense of that and to put their eyes back on the Lord who had, who had called them to go do this and to rebuild. And, uh, you know, that was a reminder for us to get our eyes off of the problem and put them on the one who actually can help deal with the problem we're contending with. Um, you know, if you're facing those times of discouragement in your life, that's a time to look at the Lord and to to have a proper uplook, not an outlook, <laughs> but to look up to him and and to look to the one who can bring you through. And so now as we move into chapter 6, we see that the enemy is still going to come at them. But uh, and, and, you know, isn't that just like the enemy today? We seem to go from one battle to the next battle to the next battle, and, and it just seems to uh, be unending. And we need to keep our eyes on Jesus so that we can remain victorious during this battle. So let's look at our text. We'll pick it up in chapter 6, verse 1. And now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and that there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates, a little honesty there, uh, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, come, let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me harm. And so I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should I, why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? But they sent this message four times and I answered them in the same manner. So the, the wall's just about completed. The, the wall structure's done, but there's still some gates and, uh, and such to be hung. But that still left a little gap. It still left a little place for the enemy to contend with them. And and so the enemies of Nehemiah are becoming desperate. They're running out of time. I mean, things are closing up and the city's going to be fully protected here pretty quickly. And um, the work is almost complete. And so they send this invitation to Nehemiah. You know, let's uh, let's get together in the plain of Ono, and we'll spend some time in the villages. And uh, they they these three Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem they they tried to arrange this meeting with Nehemiah, and they they even make it sound like it's harmless. 
you know, why don't, why don't you come and, you know, the villages and we'll just kind of kick back and hang out together, maybe have a cup of coffee Arab brew, you know, and uh, there's this offer for Ono in everybody's life. I mean, if you think about that, there's times when you get that call and somebody invites you to go somewhere and it, it seems harmless. It seems like that it's no real threat to your life or threat to your your Christian walk and and yet Nehemiah was given discernment in this particular case. Nehemiah um, had this insight from the Lord to know that um, and to recognize that Sambalat's friendly offer was actually going to be to his detriment. He was going to bring harm to him. And and so um, he recognizes this and recognizes that they were going to do harm and, and that this offer was an attempt to bring him down. I like what Alan Redpass says about this. He says, when, uh, whether you be a pastor or a teacher or an evangelist, a Sunday school teacher, whatever your position may be in Christian leadership, let me say that there will always be those who are friendly to your face, but you, you plan, but you plan your downfall behind your back. The, beware of the fawning, flattering Christian who is always fluttering around you and who will, behind your back, be the first to rejoice when you go down. Um, you can't always take things at face value. You know, there's, there's a work that goes on that tries to tear down any good work of God that's taking place. And, and so Nehemiah saw past the simplicity of their offer to come away with them, and he, he discerned the motive behind it, and he discerned that that was going to continue to bring evil against him the way they had done all along through this rebuilding project. You know, discernment is an interesting thing. It's the ability to judge matters according to God's view and not man's view. Uh, And not according to just the the outward appearance of something. You know, we're, we're often deceived by outward appearances. And this... This is why we need to really kind of stay tapped into the Lord and to keep our, our spiritual life in, in a growing pattern and, and really staying close to the Lord uh, and, and to continue to take our direction in life from the Lord and not just what appears to be good. Um, sometimes things look good on the outside, but, but it really isn't what God intends for us. Uh, remember in First Samuel uh, chapter 16, um, when Samuel was going to, um, he was sent to choose the next king that was going to replace Saul, and he was sent to the house of Jesse, and he looked at his his first son, and he thought, man, this guy's handsome. He's this guy's great. He's a great choice. I mean, just by the appearance of him. And this is what the Lord said. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or physical stature because I have refused him. The Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In other words, we can't just 
look at the appearance of something and make a decision. We have to really seek the Lord. What does the Lord see in this particular matter? You know, oftentimes when a person is operating in the gift of discernment and and the Lord gives them discernment over some matter, they can be accused of being negative or even ungrateful to um, a person that may be offering something to them. However, that's, that's not really a true assessment of discernment. True discernment is just being able to see good where the Lord sees good and to see something bad where the Lord sees it bad and, and to be able to discern between the two. And it has nothing to do with what it looks like. You know, in my opinion, uh, Christians today suffer a great deal because they lack discernment. They, they just kind of go with the flow and they, they just kind of, you know, make their choice based on what, what's the, the next popular happening thing. And they jump into things that are just detrimental to their Christian walk. And, and if they were to exercise some discernment and take time to seek the Lord about it, they could alleviate a lot of trouble in their own life. And, and so... Um, you know, you'll see, you know, large groups of people following pastors and teachers who have the appearance of being good, but they don't walk nor teach in the nature of Jesus at all. It's just, you know, they're very charismatic and and so they can gather a following of people because of the charisma but they lack any kind of sense of biblical uh, teaching in, in, their, in their sermons and such. And so these, these Christians will accept things thoughtlessly because it looks good or even sounds appealing. I mean, who doesn't want to be rich? And so it's very appealing to have a guy on TV saying, hey, if you send me money, that's seed money, and God's going to just dump truckloads of money right into your lap. And everybody says, wow, I want truckloads of money. So I'm, I'm, here, take, take my wallet, you know? And they send them everything they have. There's no discernment. There's no biblical foundation for what's being said. But it's very charismatic, and it's very believable, and many, unfortunately, get duped by that. Christian, hear me say this. Charisma can be alluring, but it's very dangerous. It doesn't mean that somebody can't have some charisma when they teach and be a good teacher, but, but we measure that based on biblical standards, not just how well they perform behind the, the box on the stage. And, and so um, we, we always want to use discernment. And we always want to test what's being said. I mean, I, I don't expect you to believe what I say. I expect you to test it according to the scripture. And if I'm off, then um, you wouldn't want to take my word for it, would you? You want to go with the scripture instead. And, and so you, you just have to test and, and ask the Lord for discernment before you, you start moving in a, a direction. So how do, how do we develop discernment? Well, first, if you want to discern things as God sees them, you need to get to know his word. I mean, that's, 
That's a fundamental principle in Christianity is the, the better we understand God's word, the better we understand the mind and the heart of God. And I mean, he's given us the scripture so that we can know him and we can know what he thinks and we can know his principles for life. And, and so the more time we spend in the scripture studying for ourselves the better we're going to know the mind of God, the better we'll be able to discern between something that would mislead us or something that would cause us to grow in our relationship with the Lord. And so that first thing is, is you want to spend time in the word, understanding God's mind and heart and all that he has declared about himself in his word. And, and that leads to the second thing. If you want discernment, it comes through spiritual maturity. And it, it, it's a Christian that's, that's growing in their faith and their, their understanding of God that's maturing is somebody that usually can exercise discernment. And, you know, in Hebrews, the, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 5, Verse 12 to 14, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. And so he was kind of rebuking the Hebrew believers and saying, you're not growing in your faith. You're, you're, you're just staying babies. You're just staying, you know, like you're drinking a bottle of milk. And, and you should be growing. In fact, by the time he was writing to them, he was saying, you, you should be teaching other people by now. That's where your maturity level should be, but you're still requiring milk. And he goes on, he says, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. And, and so he, he's saying that if, if you grow and you mature in your Christian life, that when you're, you're facing a decision about something or you're, you're looking at a direction that you want to go in your life, that, that maturity you have in the Lord will give you that sense about what is right and what is wrong and which direction you should go in your life comes through maturity. And so maturity is needed for discernment. Uh, you know, a baby will stick anything in their mouth. <laughs> I mean, if you, if you watch a baby, it doesn't matter what they pick up off the floor. It, it goes right in their mouth. And you watch baby Christians who don't want to grow in their Christian faith, and they, they pop from this thing to that thing. Every wind of doctrine that sweeps through, they stick it in their mouth like a baby, and they try it out. And there's no depth. There's no testing by the word of God. And so they'll follow the charisma wherever it takes them. And then you, you start seeing people barking like dogs and calling it, you know, being drunk in the Holy Spirit. And it's just all this stuff. And it's like, it's not biblical. It's just making a mockery out of Christianity. And, and so we need to grow. We need to spiritually mature. So when those doctrines sweep through it, you know, the, there's nothing new. They, they all just keep recycling. You know, I got saved in 1980 and I've watched a lot of 
Christian theatrics come through Christianity. And you watch it, and it'll die off, and then a few years later, it'll come back with a new name and new characters involved and a new prophet that, you know, is speaking this stuff, but it's the same stuff, and it's not biblical. And so as you grow, as you mature, you're able to discern that, and you're able to say, you know what? I don't think this is right. I I don't find that in the scripture. And so um, the third way that we can know discernment is to understand that, that discernment is a gift of the Holy Spirit. Remember when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church and he was uh, writing to them about the gifts of the Spirit, the different gifts that uh, being baptized in the Holy Spirit affords uh, church members so that you know these different gifts will work together. Well, one of them uh, was or is the gift of discerning of spirits. In 1 Corinthians 12.10, it says, to another working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits. And, and so that's a, a gift that the Holy Spirit can give to be able to discern things and, and understand the mind and the heart of God in certain matters. And, and like any of the other gifts of the Spirit, we should ask him for it. We should be seeking him for it. We should be asking the Lord, you know what, Lord, I don't know what to do in this situation. I don't know what is right. Give me discernment so I can know your heart in this and your mind in this. And you ask the Lord for discernment. You know, sometimes what is being put before you can look real appealing, but with discernment, you can see that maybe this isn't God's best for you. Maybe it would be good, but it's not the best. Maybe God has something much greater that he wants to do in your life. And so Nehemiah has discernment, and he recognizes that these guys mean to do him harm in this uh, innocent-looking meeting meeting in Ono. I like what J. Vernon McGee said about this. He said, uh, Nehemiah said, oh, no, to Ono. (laughs) I'm not going. I like that. I'm going to say oh no to a few things in my life too. So after the sermon is exercised, we see Nehemiah ask the question, why should the work cease while I leave to go with you? That, that was a great, great comeback to those detractors. Um, Nehemiah was, was obviously operating discernment and... Um, he, he wasn't going to let them pull him away from the work that God was doing uh, to go have this meeting. Uh, you know, if, if the enemy can distract you as one of God's people, if he can just kind of get you sidetracked on something, um, he, he's won the battle for, for the most part. He can keep you from having an effect on other people for the kingdom of God. He, he does this so many ways, but but through discernment, Nehemiah wasn't taken off course. He was able to, to stay on task and complete this project of rebuilding the walls there. And, and so um, Nehemiah was also very persistent in, in this discernment. They came to him four times with the same request, and, and all four times he responded the same way. I'm not, I'm not coming. Oh, no. To, oh no. 
And, and so he kept his focus. He knew what God wanted him to be doing, and he did it. He, he wouldn't be sidetracked by something that sounded okay, sounded like it was harmless. But it wasn't of God. Anyone who's intent on serving God must contend with different noble causes. There, there's always another noble cause to pull you off course. And that's why we, we have to really seek the Lord. What is it you want me to be doing with my life? Because there's a lot of good things you can do out there. But the best thing to do is what God has planned for you. And and so, you know, I I had planned on staying at Calvary Chapel Phelan until I retired. That was what I thought I would do. I, I love being an assistant pastor. I had no aspirations to pastor a church. I, I just, I loved what I was doing. And so that was good. It was a good work. It was going good. And then God said, and he put me over here in Apple Valley. And it was like, wow. Well, now I know this was the best for me. That was good and, and great at times, but this was the best for me. I, I love what I get to do now. And and so um, y- you have to just be willing to hear the Lord and go the direction he wants you to go. And and so that that discernment gave him that stick-to-itness. You know, he was able to stay on course. In verse 5, he goes on, Then Sanballat sent his servant to me, as before the fifth time with an open letter in his hand and it was in it was written it is reported among the nations and Geshem says that you and the Jews plan to rebel therefore according to these rumors you are rebuilding the wall that you may be their king and you have also appointed prophets to proclaim concerning you at Jerusalem saying there is a There is a king in Judah. Now these matters will be reported to the king. So come, therefore, and let us consult together. Now, you have to understand a little bit about the culture. An open letter would be like putting it in the newspaper today. Everybody would know what he was saying about Nehemiah. And so now it's a personal attack against Nehemiah saying, we know that you're rebuilding the walls so you can make yourself king and I'm going to tell the king on you, the, the king that sent Nehemiah out to have permission to rebuild. And, and so uh, isn't that how it usually goes down, a, a comment to make others think less of you? And, and then that comment kind of spreads and, and, you know, people start chipping away at your character and such. It's definitely an enemy's tactic. And, and so he says it's reported among the nations. In other words, everyone's talking about you, Nehemiah. Everybody knows this. All the nations. They know you want to be king. And, and now the threat comes. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell the real king on you, and he's going to come down on you. So why don't you come and meet with us? So now there's some threat behind this, this so-called meeting they want to have. And and so Nehemiah wouldn't be deceived into coming. He had too much discernment. And so the slandering didn't work. 
This is Nehemiah's response in verse 8. Then I sent to him, saying, No such thing as you say are being done, but you invent them in your own heart, for they all were trying to make us afraid, saying, Their hands will be weakened in the work, and it will not be done. Therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. I want you to notice something here. Nehemiah speaks truth about this, about the accusations. He says, you know what? These aren't true. What you said, they're not true. You just made it up in your own heart. But he doesn't run around trying to put out all the fires. He doesn't run to all the nations and try to protect his reputation. God has his back, and he knows that. So he speaks the truth, and he leaves it alone. And... um, And then he prays, oh God, strengthen my hands. The Lord is our strength and our defender. The Lord is the one who can defend us. In in Psalm 18, too, it says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Psalm 59, 17 says, to you, Oh, my strength, I will sing praises, for God is my defense, my God of mercy. You know, the temptation when when somebody's attacking our character is to try to defend ourselves and to put out the fires. You know, I can remember a, a few years back, Pastor Ray Carter, who's out at Calvary Chapel Lake Havasu, had some guys in this church that kind of got a, a little beef with him, and they had this little powwow, and they decided that they were going to go after him. And they started writing newspaper articles about him. They were slandering. They were making all kinds of false accusations about him. And, and I even went out there to meet with these guys with him at one time, and they were just, they weren't going to hear it. They were going to just keep going after him. And, and so I asked Ray, what are you going to do? And he said, nothing. <laughs> I'm just going to keep preaching the word, and I'm going to let God deal with it. And he did. And He's still out there. He's still pastoring the church. The church is still doing well. And all these people have scattered and aren't doing anything of value for the kingdom of God. And actually, the guy that was the front runner in this is is actually, he died about a year later. He did call and apologize, which was a good thing and was able to reconcile. But uh, it, it was just a tragic thing. But the Lord was his defender. The Lord has our back. We don't, we don't have to put out the fires. And he goes on in verse 10. Afterwards, I came to the house of uh, Shimeiah, the son of Delaiah, the son of all these people. Wow. Who was a secret informer and said, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple and let those and let us close the doors of the temple for they are coming to kill you. Indeed, at night they will come to kill you. And I said, should I should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his life? I will not go in. Then I perceived that God had not sent him at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this reason he hired, he was hired, that I should be afraid and act that way and sin so that I might have, they might have cause for an evil report that they might reproach me. My God 
Remember Tobiah and Sambalat according to these, their works and their prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who have made, who would have made me afraid. You know, that, that was seemingly a good piece of advice. Hey, why don't you, you come into the temple and hide away? I mean, it just seems like, yeah, there's no harm in that. That, that almost seems like a smart thing to do. If, if there's somebody coming to kill you, you go hide where you could be safe. So was Nehemiah being unreasonable by refusing this advice? No, he, he was actually being unstoppable. He, he was, uh, I mean, how do you stop a guy like Nehemiah? First, the enemy tried negotiation. Then he tried to, to incriminate him. And now he tries to isolate him to get him off the project that the Lord had given him. And nothing worked. And still today, the enemy will try to isolate you. But God desires us to impact the world around us. He wants us to have an effect on people. He doesn't want us to go into seclusion. He, he wants us to step out of our comfort zone and actually have an effect on other people's lives for the kingdom of God. And so it's always the enemy's tactic to try to get us to pull away and to tuck away and hide, be alone. Can't have an effect that way. And so again, there's discernment from Nehemiah and he sees through this tactic to take him out. In verse 15, he continues, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of Elul in 52 days. And it happened when all our enemies heard of it, that all the nations around us saw these things, and they were very disheartened in their own eyes, for they perceived that this work was done by our God. Powerful, powerful thing. You know, the, the amount of time, you know, we've been reading five chapters up until tonight. This is the sixth chapter. And it just seems like this has gone on and on and on, but it's really only 52 days that this project has been taking place. The walls were broken down and in ruins for more than 100 years. And now in only 52 days, they've been restored, rebuilt, they're secure. However, we, we see this amazing picture of success in the Lord. How was the wall finished? Well, it was through this interesting dynamic that God so wonderfully does. God doing a powerful work, but using men and women and their persistence to get the work done to accomplish it. And and I don't know how all of that equals out in God's economy, but I do know that we have to put effort into it. God doesn't force us to do things. There has to be a willingness on our part. There has to be a, a desire to serve God. And then he accompanies that desire with his power. And then he brings about the impossible and, and makes it happen. And so God was amazing in what he did for the people. But remember, Nehemiah was grieved. He, he prayed, he calculated, he counted the cost. He, he requested prayer boldly from the people. And, and then he went at them and he fought and, 
And so there, there was a lot of effort on his part. But he couldn't have done it without the power of God. All of his effort would have left him short. He wouldn't have been able to accomplish what he was trying to do. And so he, he, he saw the job through to completion, but, but he also communicated the vision and cast the vision to other people so they can come along and work with him and, and you know, be involved in what was happening and what God was doing, and, and, and they all participated in it. That's what a good leader does. We, we, we have such small ideas of how God can use us. Well, God used a man named Nehemiah to take this 100-year-old problem and in 52 days bring it back to order and put it back in place. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty remarkable accomplishment. Folks, this is the same God that wants to work in your life today. The same God that wants to work in my life. And, and he wants to work through you and he wants to work through me. Nehemiah's trust in the Lord and his persistence and his calling moved him through all of these intense spiritual conflicts and battles that he had. And check this out. When the wall was finished, it says the enemies were disheartened and, and they recognized that this was a work of God. They, they recognized that there, there would be no way to stop this from happening. This was a work of God. Such a great sense of victory when our enemy recognizes that God is working in us. Even though the battles are, are hard and, and we fight them and we get weary, the, the work was challenged from the outside, from the inside. Remember, they even had turmoil on the inside for a time. But Nehemiah, with the Lord, pressed through, and the job was finished. And the, their enemies were disheartened because of Nehemiah's strength in the Lord. They were discouraged because it was evident that it was a work of God. And you know, when, when people look at Calvary Chapel, Apple Valley, that's what I, I hope and pray that they would see. That, that what's happening here isn't the, the fault of any person. It's a work of God. That God's doing a work in our midst. That it's his power that's changing lives and, and affecting people. Church, when, when something we commit to do and press through until the finish lies, it, when, when we see God's fingerprints on it, all of our enemies notice that too. They recognize, wow, there, there really is something to this. There's, there's actually a God behind all of this. You know, I, I sometimes wonder what those people outside in our community think. You know, when they look at us, what do they think? Are we attempting anything for God that, that requires that desperate dependence upon him? You know, we, we have this 9-11 service coming up, and, you know, I've been encouraging you guys to pray for this and to pray for the, the people that are going to come. 
And really what, what we want to see happen is we want to see them meet the Lord that day. I mean, what a, what a blessing it would be to see that peace of God rest on people who deal with conflict all day long. So pray. It's coming up quickly, so pray. Remember, Nehemiah prayed four months to work through this project that took less than two months. It took 52 days. But he prayed four months before he started to make sure that they were on course. So pray. We want this day to minister to first responders and for it to be obvious that God is doing the work. That they would be drawn to him. You know, when, when we send teams out to the mission field, you heard last week when the Uganda team shared that, you know, God does the miraculous through people who are willing. Not necessarily people who are able, but people who are willing to let God work through them. He does miraculous things. The strong, secure people of Jerusalem were a witness to the surrounding nations of the mighty power of God. And we'll see stories of that Sunday with Teen Challenge guys here and hear the miraculous things that God does to break the chains of addiction. And so the the problem is that many of us live our Christian lives and no one takes notice of it because we've never expected God to do extraordinary things through our life. And we just coast. And and we just get so ripped off and we fail to let the Lord do what he wants to do through our lives. Folks, let the Lord do the building work and he 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 will blow you away. I, I can remember being in Russia with Pastor Vlad and Nizhny Novgorod and we, we went into the police headquarters building and we were going to preach the gospel to these guys. And so we we go in there and, and Vlad grew up there. I mean, they, they don't ever leave their city. Very rarely do they move to a different city. So he's been in Nizhny Novgorod his whole life. This building used to be the KGB building. Now it's the police headquarters. And so his whole life he was afraid of this building. And we're going in there and he's going to translate for me as I preach. And so I, I can remember right in the middle of the message, Vlad looks at me and he says, dude, you're blowing me away. And I said, he, he went to Bible college in Yucca Valley and got kind of the valley language. But, <laughs> but he's like, dude, you're blowing me away. I said, what? Did I say something wrong? He said, no. He said, no, 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 no. I've been afraid of this building my whole life. God is blowing my mind right now. You're preaching, but I'm saying it because he was translating it and he, he was just blown away because he was willing to go somewhere. He was afraid to death of this building. God let him preach the gospel and somebody got saved in that building that day. It was powerful. Anyways, I am never going to finish. I need to get going here. Verse 17. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah and the letters of Tobiah came to them for many in Judah were pledged to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, 
And his son, Jehonanan, he had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Nobody's name is Sam, Barry. It's like, why? (laughs) I can barely speak English, and I'm trying to read these names. Uh, Also, they reported his good deeds before me and reported my words to him. Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. Now notice here, even though there was a great victory already accomplished, the wall was rebuilt, the temple was rebuilt, the enemy's still at it, still coming at him. Tobiah went on a letter-writing campaign to frighten Nehemiah. It's interesting to me that the, the people of Jerusalem were kind of befriending Tobiah. You remember there was this problem when they were, they were intermixing in marriage for a time? And, and so somehow they came out related and, and those family ties were, were kind of bringing them into alliance with uh, the enemy instead of with Nehemiah. But, you know, it sounds like they were even seeing Nehemiah as the bad guy. Notice here that Nehemiah had to be willing to be seen as the bad guy in order to do what was right by the people of God. And so through discernment, he could see what the nobles of Judah could not see. He, he knew that Tobiah's good deeds were, were not truly good and that Tobiah was still sending letters to try to come against him and to attack him. And so again, we see discernment as being essential. All right, we're going to get through this next chapter in 10 minutes. Ready, set, go. All right, verse one. Then it was... When the wall was built, I had hung the doors when the gatekeepers and the singers and the Levites had been appointed that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. So now we we see Nehemiah passing along some of the responsibilities to other faithful men to help with this vision of of this project. What were the qualifications? Well, they they needed to be faithful and God-fearing. Similar qualifications to what leaders are required today in New Testament times. Uh, You remember... um, Turn with me over to 1 Timothy 3. Paul was writing to Timothy and kind of giving some qualification. I'm just going to read through these qualifications for you, for spiritual leaders. 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, it says, This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he does a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but covetous, or not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest he being puffed up with pride, he would fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into the snare or reproach and the snare of the devil. And so we, we see that the, 
the pastors, the elders have to have these qualities in their spiritual life to be one that is uh, called or entrusted with the responsibilities to lead. And then he goes to the deacons and the ser- or the servants in verse 8. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy for money, but holding uh, the mystery of faith with a pure conscience. But let those also be tested, first be tested, then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own house as well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves good standing and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And and so in order for somebody to uh, be one that would be entrusted with carrying on the vision that God has given to us as as a church here, you'd have to have these qualities. And, and, and really it relates to spiritual character. You remember in Acts chapter 6 when the uh, apostles were were needing help and, and they needed somebody to wait tables for them and, and to serve the widows so they could they could teach the word and they could spend the time teaching the word and not not be caught up with the service on the tables. It says when they when they looked for them, this is what they looked for in Acts chapter six, verse three. It says, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom whom you may appoint over this business. The spiritual character had to be strong just to serve tables. Why? Because they were, they were taking a part of that commission to be in ministry and to serve the Lord and to fulfill that obligation that the apostles had. And so, so their spiritual character had to be strong. And so Nehemiah was looking for those strong characters that he could hand off part of the ministry to. In verse 3, Nehemiah 7, it says, And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. While they stand guard, let them shut the bar, uh, shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and another in front of his own house. In other words, use, use wisdom. Even though you've been victorious, don't open yourself up to the attack of the enemy. If you've, if you've experienced victory in the Lord, don't open up the door for the enemy to come in and wipe you out. Just use wisdom. Use, use some smarts about this and be mindful of the enemy and his tactics. And so don't needlessly open up yourself to his attack. So many Christians get ripped off by this. You know, they, 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 they see the Lord move in their life and they do something that, that's way beyond themselves and they know it's the Lord and then they go out and hang out with the boys and get hammered. It's like they just open themselves up to the enemy again and, and needlessly take themselves out of the equation for service. And so... Verse 4, now the city was large and spacious, but the people in, in it were few and the houses were not rebuilt. But then God put it into the heart of, 
heart to gather nobles, rulers, and the people that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register of the genealogy of those who had come up in the first return and found written in it. Uh, the, the work of the wall was finished, but the overall work wasn't complete. They still had uh, some to do, and um, they, they needed to assign the, the tasks of, according to their genealogy and, and who they, um, the, the Levites needed to be Levites. And they, they had to prove that through the, the genealogy line. And, and so um, I'm going to spare you verses 6 to 63 because you can slaughter all of those names on your own. Uh, these, these are the names in the genealogy. Um, if I read them to you, um, it will hurt. So I'm going to skip them. So verse 64, and we'll read through the end here. These sought their listing among those who were registered by genealogy, but it was not found. Therefore, they were excluded from the priesthood as defiled. And the governor said to them, they shall not eat of the most holy things till the priest could consult with the Urim and Thummim. Altogether, those, altogether, the whole assembly was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 245 men and women singers. Their horses were 736, their mules 245, and their camels, they had a bunch of those, a bunch of donkeys, and their fathers and the heads of the house gave to the work. And the governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold drachmas, 50 basins, 530 priestly garments. Some of the heads of the fathers' houses gave to the treasury of the work of 20,000 gold drachmas and uh, 2,200 silver minas. And that which the rest of the people gave was 20,000 gold drachmas, 2,000 silver minas, and 67 priestly garments. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, and the singers, some of the people, the Nethilim, and all Israel dwelt in their cities. So this important list of genealogy was brought in, and they were able to assign some to the priesthood, some who said they were of that genealogy couldn't be proven in the list that they had. It wasn't a complete list. Remember, they were taken into captivity. They, they were fortunate to have any list. So those who weren't able to be put in the priesthood, they would have to consult um, the Urim and Thummim when that got back in gear again, and, and they could make a decision at that time. And so what did we learn tonight? Well, we learned the importance of discernment and determining the will of God, the direction of God for our life. We know that we need to seek the Lord. We need to spend time in his word. We need to um, spend time at his feet, getting to know him, to have his discernment. It's critical that we do that. I, I hope you'll be encouraged to see past adversity. Uh, you're always going to have adversity in your Christian life. It's going to come in different waves and different forms. You can expect it but you can also see past it if you keep your eyes on the Lord. Stand with him, move according to his prompting. We, we have much work to be done in these last days, and we want to be about his business, right? 
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the example that we see in Nehemiah. Lord, I pray that that we would be encouraged as believers today, Lord, to really spend time with you and and really develop that that ability to discern right and wrong, to discern your will as opposed to the temptation and the lies of the enemy and and even those well-meaning things that would distract us from the good and the great things that you have intended for us. So, Lord, I pray for each person here, Lord, that you would help them to build their spiritual character. Lord, that you would give them strength to be able to serve you. Lord, may, may people look at the work that you're doing in us as a church and see the fingerprints of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.